And uh, if you brought a Bible, I'll encourage you to go ahead and grab it now, and uh, you can flip to the Gospel of John. And we are finishing up chapter 18 this morning, John chapter 18. Um, We've been uh, quite a while in the book of John, and so if you're just joining us, you're coming right at the very end, essentially. We've been walking through what is often called the passion narrative, Um, the trial and crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, these final chapters in the Gospel of John. So let me just bring you up to speed on what we've seen already. Um, Jesus has been arrested. That was at the beginning of John 18. Um, He was taken first to Annas, um, the high priest, and we've we've unpacked why there's two men called the high priest. But first he was taken to Annas and put on trial And we saw Peter's denial of Jesus three times. People came to him and said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And he denied it once, twice, three times. And then we saw at the very end of our passage last week that now Annas bound Jesus and he sent him off to Caiaphas. So the rest of chapter 18 is this interesting conversation that takes place between Pilate and Jesus And really, um, there's a lot that's said, but a a large chunk of it centers around the topic of truth. Even, uh, we'll see in our passage, Pilate famously says the statement that many people in our culture say, what is truth? Right? So the idea that that truth is just relative and no one can really understand what truth is, it's not a new thing. It's not a new trend. 2,000 years ago, Pilate said the same thing. But in, all, in our culture, um, truth is, is seen as very relative. And what I mean by that, in this postmodern culture that we live in, many people will say there is no such thing as objective truth. No one can say, I have the truth about such and such. Um, you're only allowed to say, I have my truth, right? And it's, very, it's seen actually as very bigoted and hateful, and arrogant for any one person to say, no, it's not just my truth, it's the truth. Um, and so we, we hear a lot of platitudes like this. Well, what's true for you? It doesn't have to be true for me, right? We hear that all the time. If you've ever had conversations with people about um, Christianity or morality or sexual ethics or whatever, I've, I've often had that platitude said to me, well, that's fine, that works for you. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. And there's this idea that, well, there's no universal truth, right? So to illustrate, in our culture, if me standing here as a Christian pastor, if we brought up a Buddhist and a Muslim and a Jew and basically every religion you can think of and brought up representatives, our culture would have to say, they're all right, You can't say that only one is right and everyone else is wrong. No, 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 no. Everyone is right. And hopefully you're logical enough to see that there's massive problems with that view. I love the idea that there is no absolute truth. Well, really? Because you just said an absolute truth. So is that not true? Like, do you see the logical inconsistencies? Um, Oprah Winfrey, she's not the like pioneer of it, but she's someone that pushes this narrative all the time. You just got to find your truth. You just got to be true to yourself. Um, She has a podcast 
that I do not listen to, don't worry. Um, but it's called the Super Soul Podcast. And I was just kind of looking through for information. And one of her episodes was called Your Own Truth. And here's the explanation of the episode. Oprah explains why it is important for all of us to find our own truth. What is the truth of me? Why am I here? And what do I have to offer? Oprah asks, and the answer, she says, is yourself. Right? So what is the truth? Well, it's just you. It's whatever you want to be the truth. So we're going to see Jesus. He's going to talk about what truth actually is. And then what we want to do is just unpack what happens to a society and an individual when truth is rejected. What, what is the natural consequence of that? And then to end, just to say, well, how, are, how do you and I be people of the truth? And then how do we actually know the truth and then share the truth with others? And really what Jesus is doing is he's just laying out what his kingdom is. He says, this is my kingdom. It's a kingdom of truth. So let's start reading. Uh, we'll read the first few verses starting in Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So let's stop here because here's kind of the setup for the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And so we're told that early morning, probably right after sunrise, they lead Jesus from Caiaphas' house to the governor's headquarters. And it's interesting, but John doesn't include anything about the trial in front of Caiaphas. If you read the other uh, gospel accounts, you'll read about uh, that trial and Jesus is in front of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the ruling uh, uh, leaders of the day. And he's in front of the, the high priest. And basically at that trial, what they charge him with is, well, it's blasphemy. He's saying blasphemous things. So John doesn't include any of that. But he just says that now... They've led him to the governor's headquarters, and, and we're told in, in a little bit that this, this governor is named Pilate, but here's what's so ironic, and there's several points where John specifically shows the irony of it. It says in <clears throat> the second half of verse 28 that they wouldn't enter the headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled so that they could eat the, the Passover. So you have the Jewish leaders who are bringing Jesus for trial, and they go, ah, well, actually, we can't come inside this Gentile, his house, or else we'll be unclean. So that was one of the rules that they had made up. It's not in the Old Testament, but it was one of the extra rules where they said a Jewish person can't go inside a Gentile's house or else you're, you're rendered unclean, and you have to do all of these ceremonial ritual things to become clean. But a Jewish person could go inside a Gentile courtyard because it's open to the sky. It kind of sounds like COVID rules. I mean, I'm sorry. I should not have said that. <laughs> yeah, but they could. You can come into the courtyard. That's fine because it's open, but you can't go inside the house. So these, these Jewish leaders, they, they won't go inside Pilate's 
headquarters because they want to eat the Passover. They don't want to become unclean. So can we just notice the irony and the hypocrisy of this? The religious leaders are concerned with ritual, ceremonial uncleanness while they're plotting murder. Like, I think John specifically is going, do you see how ridiculous this is? Right? We want to kill this innocent man, but we don't want to become unclean, so we'll stay outside. So they're taking elaborate precautions to avoid contamination so that they can eat the Passover. At the very same time, they're manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of Jesus, who is the true Passover. So it's just, it's just riddled with irony and hypocrisy. Um, John Calvin actually uh, wrote about this. He said, these hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and greed that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell, are only afraid of external pollution. So you see, like, the matter of the heart doesn't matter to these religious leaders. Outwardly, we'll follow all the rules while our hearts are full of, full of malice and hatred and murder. So what happens? So Pilate comes out, <clears throat> verse 29, and he asks, well, what's the charge? Why are you bringing me this guy? What, what accusation are, are you bringing against him? So a couple things about Pilate. Pilate was appointed by Emperor Tiberius, and he served as the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD, 10 years. And during that time, he had a really rough relationship with the Jews. Um, he hated them, and they hated him. And I, I won't go into, because it's quite long stories, but there's several historical stories where him and the Jews just butted heads, and then the Jews reported to Pilate's superior to complain about him. So needless to say, it's like a tense relationship between Pilate and the Jews, and you can kind of, you can kind of pick up on it in, in the dialogue. So Pilate says, well, what, what charge? And I love in verse 30 that they don't actually answer him. They just say, well, if he wasn't doing bad things, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So you see, it's a non-answer. What has this man done? Well, if he wasn't doing bad things, would we be here? Right? So it's just kind of like, okay, guys, seriously. But the reason is um, the charge against Jesus is blasphemy. And Pilate could care less. If a man blasphemed their God, he doesn't care about that. So they can't come to Pilate and say, well, he blasphemed Yahweh. Pilate would say, I don't care what he says about your God. So they just said, well, he's done evil things. That's why we're here, obviously. And then Pilate says, well, judge him yourself. Isn't that great? Well, just judge him yourself. Don't bother me with this. And they answer, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. <clears throat> which is true. Um, Rome was in charge of capital punishment cases, but you see examples of people stoned to death when mob mentality took over, and the Romans seemed to allow that to happen occasionally, right? They even, if you remember in, in our study of John, they tried to stone Jesus already, Right? They pick up, picked up stones when he claimed to be Yahweh. They picked up stones to kill him, but he just kind of escaped. So there were instances where the Jewish people would stone people to death, 
But really, on paper, the law was, well, Rome is in charge of capital punishment. You guys are our subjects. You're not allowed to do that on your own. So they're right when they say, well, it's not lawful for us, which suddenly they care about the law, right? (laughs) Irony. Uh, It's not lawful for us to, to kill anyone. But John tells us that this is not just like legal matters. Verse 32, he says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So verse 32 tells us this is why this is so important. It's to fulfill what Jesus had said. Remember in John 3, Jesus said this, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And, And Jesus was talking about the type of death, right? When he's nailed to a cross and lifted up, then he will draw men to himself for eternal life. And then even in Matthew 20, Jesus said, he prophesied, predicted that he would be delivered to Gentiles to be killed. In Deuteronomy 21 and in Galatians 3, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus became a curse for us. So yes, on, on the surface level, Jesus was crucified because because the Jews said, wow, we're not allowed legally to kill anyone, so now Rome has to do it. But theologically, this happened to fulfill everything that God had planned from the beginning. So there's the, the, the setup. So let's keep reading in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So let's pause here for a minute because now the scene uh, shifts to inside Pilate's headquarters. And, And so Pilate calls Jesus And he asks him, well, are you the king of the Jews? So clearly, somehow Pilate has heard word that that's what maybe the charge is against Jesus, that Jesus has claimed or that his enemies are claiming that he says that he's the king. He's the king of the Jews. And I love Jesus' answer, right? He just says, well, is is this coming from you, Pilate? Or are you just repeating what you heard? Isn't that great? Like, Pilate, is this what you're convinced about? Or are you just repeating what the mob says? And I love, you can tell Pilate's, uh, the frustration and his hatred of the Jews in his answer. He did not like them. He says, am I a Jew? Right? Your own nation and your own chief priest delivered you over. So like, what have you done, Jesus? So I think you can tell that Pilate just really wants nothing to do with this. With the Jews or with Jesus, he just cannot be bothered And it just feels like he's just trying to get to the end of this so that he can just move on with his day. And and I say that because if you read Pilate's history with the Jews, this happened often. He just did not like being their governor. So then Jesus answers him, right? And he unpacks what his kingdom is like. He says, my kingdom is not of the world. 
Because if it was, well, then you'd have a fight on your hands and all my servants would be fighting physically for my release, but my, my kingdom's not from the world. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom is only a spiritual one, right? There's physical aspects of Jesus' kingdom, right? But what he's saying is, where does his kingdom come from? His kingdom, it's otherworldly. It comes from heaven. It comes from outside of the present physical world. And because of that, it operates differently, right? So even think about how Peter responded. Peter and the disciples, their view of the kingdom was the wrong view where they said, well, it's, we're just going to attack Rome. And you see it when Jesus is arrested, right? Peter pulls the sword out and bah, cuts off someone's ear. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword away, right? That's not how his kingdom operates, Right? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Put your sword away. So Jesus is not fighting back. <clears throat> He's not a violent revolutionary. He's not the type of king that people thought. He is willingly going to his death. And so he's telling Pilate, like, my kingdom's not like any other kingdom that you've seen. And so Pilate kind of gloms on to the word kingdom. And he says, ah, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king, classic Jesus. And then he goes on to describe his kingship. He says this, for this purpose I was born and have come into the world. Here it is, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus says the reason that he came, the reason that he was born was to come and to bear witness to the truth. And so Jesus' kingdom Right? He's the king of it, and the purpose of his kingship is to show people the truth. And this goes so far beyond just like intellectual truth. What he's doing is it's the self-disclosure of God. Truth incarnate. That's why Jesus can say, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's why he can say, right, I've, I've borne witness to the truth of God, to salvation, to, to judgment, it's like Jesus came and he is truth embodied, truth in the flesh to, to reveal God to us. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what he means by that is people who are of the truth are the ones that respond to Jesus, who hear the gospel, who hear his voice and say, yes, that is tr true. Essentially, what I think Jesus is subtly asking Pilate is he saying, do you belong to the truth, Pilate? Are you hearing my voice? And here's how Pilate responds. What is truth? Right? But essentially what he does is he shuts down the conversation because he has no idea what truth even is. So again, this is not a new phenomenon, right, where we go, oh, we're so enlightened, we're so postmodern, oh, we have all these philosophical ideas of truth. Yeah, so did Pilate 2,000 years ago. It's nothing new. Now, here's the other irony, right? Several times in our passage, John very cleverly shows the irony of the situation. So here is Pilate, the one who has been charged to determine the truth of this matter. What is the truth about Jesus? Is he innocent? Is he guilty? And in, in this, he just glibly dismisses the relevance of truth and he's standing in the presence of the one who is truth incarnate. So we're meant to go, Pilate, what are you doing? 
you're charged with just finding out the truth of Jesus. And he just goes, bah, what is truth? So, verse 38, the second half. This is what happens. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate goes outside, and in this short conversation with Jesus, he says, there's nothing guilty in him. I'm sure he thought, okay, this guy is saying some weird philosophical things, but he's harmless. He's not a threat to Rome. Right? And so he goes out and he says, there's, there's, this man is innocent. And you'll notice that Pilate's kind of at a stalemate here. He has an angry mob that he's trying to please, and yet he has an innocent man that I think Pilate initially doesn't want to kill a guy that is no threat to him. So he's kind of at a stalemate. But rather than standing up for the truth of Jesus' innocence, he attempts to appease the crowds a little bit. And so he points them to a custom that they would have where um, every Passover, um, the custom was is that Rome would release a prisoner as kind of a, a goodwill offering, if you want to call it that, right? Okay, fine, we'll let one of your prisoners go as an attempt to just buy some favor with, with the people. Every Passover, they would do this. And so I think Pilate's going, okay, here's how I'm going to get out of this this sticky situation, right? This guy's innocent. These guys want him dead. I'll just refer to the custom and say, hey, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Which I'm like, Pilate, if you're gonna release him, don't call him that. <laughs> they hate that. But he says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Maybe this will let Pilate off the hook, but what do the crowds do? They, nope, we don't want that man. We want Barabbas. And we're told in John that Barabbas was a robber, but we're told in the other Gospels that he was a murderer, that he was a, a, an insurrectionist. So basically, he was kind of this revolutionary leader who tried to lead an a, a insurrection against Rome, and he was a robber and a murderer. So not a nice guy. Now, here is the last bit of irony in this passage. Barabbas, that name in Greek, it means how you translate Barabbas is son of the father. So the people are yelling out, free Barabbas, free the son of the father, rather than the true son of the father. So, I mean, you can see in this passage, and we've seen all through the book of John, um, people just refuse to accept the truth about Jesus. Like, think back all the way back to John 6 when all the crowds are following Jesus and then he says some hard things and, and what happens? They go, this is too hard and they all turn back and they, I refuse to accept the truth that you're, that you're telling us, Jesus. Like over and over and over throughout the gospel of John, we see uh, people reacting to Jesus by going, I, I can't accept this truth, Jesus. Even in our passage, what did the rejection of truth lead to? Um, it, it always leads to evil and chaos. So think about it. The religious leaders have rejected the truth about Jesus. And what are they doing? They're plotting murder. They're violent. They're angry. 
They're hypocrites. All the while, well, we got to remain good on the outside and we're so ceremonial, ceremonial, ceremonially clean. All the while, their hearts are just full of hatred and wickedness and evil. Pilate, he doesn't care about the truth of Jesus. He just kind of says, well, what is truth, right? And what does he do? He bows to the will of the mob, which we're going to see in, in chapter 19. He ends up flogging Jesus. He ends up uh, allowing Jesus to just be ridiculed and mocked. Why? Because he's just too cowardly to stand up for the truth. Um, the abandonment of truth always leads to moral decay and depravity and evil and chaos, inevitably. And so what... what How this applies to us is you and I, we live in a society that does not care about truth. We say truth does not matter. Um, Objective truth is bad. And whatever you want to be true is true, right? So So think about how unbelievably dangerous that is. Whatever you want to be true, that is totally true for you. And look at our society over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What has it gotten us? Moral decay, chaos, and evil. So some examples from our culture. I mean, you think about the, the complete and utter abandonment of truth. Like literally tomorrow, as an example, I could dress up as a woman and say, I am a woman and all of you have to agree with me or else you're a bigot. Not just agree that I'm dressed as a woman, that agree, you have to agree fundamentally that I am a woman. That's happening in our culture. Um, we've actually changed terminology in our world. It's not, it's not a pregnant woman. Did you know that now we have to call people pregnant persons? Because people in our society says, well, maybe men can get pregnant too. Um, Young girls in high schools are forced to change in the locker rooms with young men because those young men decide that they feel like women. Um, We literally drug and perform surgery and we castrate people, sometimes even minors, not always, but sometimes, because of their truth. Um, Recently in the States, I saw several Um, advertisements and and reaction videos to what are called family-friendly drag shows, men dressed as women dancing provocatively in front of children, all in the name of progress, and look how accepting we are, and look how amazing our society is. Um, You talk about the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the, the absolute anger and uproar over this, that you have a woman, Stacey Abrams, who was a former governor, when several states uh, passed a heartbeat bills which said, which said, hey, if you can hear a heartbeat, you're not allowed to murder your child anymore. And Stacey Abrams said this as fact. She said, the heartbeat sound in an ultrasound, that is a manufactured, made-up sound created by men to control women's bodies. And people... Wow, that's amazing. I mean, literally, we have people marching for their right to slaughter their children. Because truth doesn't matter. What's true for you might not be true for me. Everything is true. 
I mean, the Bible actually really clearly talks about this. In Romans 1, if you want to flip there, Paul describes what happens when a society says we don't care about truth anymore. When people refuse the truth about God revealed to them, it inevitably leads to a decline in morality. It leads to chaos and depravity and wickedness. I mean, you, you read Romans 1, starting in verse 19. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. So, so Paul is saying that no one can say, well, I didn't know there was a God. I'm, I'm, I have an excuse. He says it's been clearly shown since the beginning in his power, in creation, in divine nature, since the creation of the world. We all can go, okay, there is a God, clearly. Look at the world we live in. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the people said, we are so wise that we don't want to worship God. That's not true. God doesn't exist. We're going to worship all of these other things. Verse 24, what happens when humanity does that? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because look, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So human beings said, I don't, there is no truth. I don't care about the truth about God. I'm gonna worship and serve whatever I want. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So one of the, one of the effects of human beings saying, I don't care about truth. I don't care about the truth of God. I want to live however I want. What does it lead to? depravity, shamelessness, shameful things. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Is that not our society? This is the world that we live in. I don't care what the penalty is. I'm going, to I'm going to approve all of this lawlessness and I'm going to encourage others to do the same. All in the name of truth doesn't matter. Because I hope you noticed, where did it start? It started with people going, I, don't, I actually don't believe the truth about God. And it inevitably leads to chaos, moral decay, and depravity. 
So this is happening in our culture. And unfortunately, I think church culture has bought into relativism and the fact that truth doesn't really matter that much as well. Um, in 2022, so this year, um, Ligonier, which is a ministry in the States, they did a massive survey, um, which they called the State of Theology Survey, um, which they asked Christians, people who would say, yep, I'm an evangelical Christian, they just presented them with a whole bunch of theological statements, and then people had to either say, well, agree or disagree. And I read this study, and I was absolutely shocked So here's some of the statements that that they asked people. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% agree. So inevitably what that is saying is that God is not all-knowing and he's not all-powerful. He's just kind of learning and adapting just like you. Half of supposed Christians believe this about God, that he's not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% agree, which is hard when you read the Bible that we're not. We're born sinful and enemies of God. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of Christians agree. It doesn't matter what religion you're in. God just kind of accepts all of them. So again, does truth matter? Well, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% agree. So so think about that. Almost half of supposed Christians say Jesus was just a great man. Which, if you think about it, if Jesus is just a great teacher, then we're all dead in our sins heading to hell. Does truth matter? Yes. The Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. 26% agree, which I was like pleasantly surprised. Okay, only a quarter of people. (laughs) As I'm depressed reading this, I'm like, maybe a, a glint of hope. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 38% agree. So do you see the culture bleeding in? It's not about truth. It's just your opinion. It's what you feel. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 44% disagree. So again, almost half of people say, well, the Bible's not accurate in everything. And then this one, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, receive God's free gift of eternal salvation, 40% disagree. You don't, you don't even have to trust in Jesus to get salvation. So again, what, what blew me away is this, this is people who would call themselves Christians, who are flat out rejecting the truth that we find in Scripture. Like, what does Jesus tell Pilate? He says, This is the reason that I was born, and this is why I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who listens, or everyone who is of the truth, listens to Jesus. So, you and I, we want to be people of the truth, I I hope. We want to be people who say, Yes, I want to listen to the voice of Jesus. I want to be a person of truth. 
Now, we have to then define, well, what is the biblical definition of truth? Because I, I just looked up on Google, truth, the definition of truth. This is our culture's definition, definition of truth. Truth is the quality or state of being true. Trump guy, okay. Here is the, the biblical definition of truth. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. That is the truth. Anything that is consistent with who God is, his mind, his will, his character, his glory, his being, that is true. That's why Jesus can say that he is the truth. Because he perfectly revealed everything about God the Father to us. That's why he can say, I am truth. I have perfectly and consistently revealed the mind, will, character, glory, and, and being of God. So how do we do this then? How do we know the truth? And then how do we speak the truth in a culture that doesn't believe in truth? Well, first off, I think to know the truth, we need to actually read the truth. <laughs> Um, Romans 12.2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, right? The world's view of truth and morality, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how we know the truth is that we train our minds, we spend time in in the word, in the truth. We're not conformed to the image of the world, but we want to be transformed. If you want to know the truth, then you need to read the, the truth, right? So the, the big takeaway, which is it's not, uh, you know, a crazy mystical thing. Just read the Bible, right? Know, know the truth. Meditate on this. What is true about God from his revealed word to us. But again, I'm so guilty of this is that I constantly turn on the tap of culture and I am, I am allowing culture to really, if I'm honest, transform my mind because I spend time on Facebook and Instagram and I watch TV and then I, uh, I watch the news and then I read news and I do this and do that. And I'm not saying that we just like turn off everything, never read a newspaper again. That's not what I'm saying. But when you go the ratio, man, how much do I conform my mind and, and, and transform it to the word of God as opposed to culture? It's like 90-10 lots of times. So I think for all of us, it would be so healthy to just turn off the tap of culture for a while and be in the word so that you know what the truth is. This will transform your mind. That's how we know the truth. And then secondly, we need to be people who speak the truth. And increasingly in our culture, the truth is just suppressed because um, people don't want to hear it. And actually, I, it can be quite scary to speak the truth about the moral decay that's going on, to, tr to speak the truth about biblical sex sexuality, to, to say that Christ alone provides salvation. There's salvation in no other name. It can be scary to swim against culture and, and speak the, the truth into it. But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't in anger yell at people, picket, call them idiots for not knowing the truth. Nowhere does, does Jesus get angry or use obscenities with people who are denying the truth. Jesus lovingly and firmly just speaks the truth to them. 
But like, no, notice even, even when, when people are speaking lies and they're, and they're making up things and they're striking him, he doesn't say, hey, you morons, don't you realize truth? And he doesn't form a petition and he doesn't pick it on the street corner. No, he just calmly and firmly shares the truth. And so I think, too, as Christians, sometimes we get this wrong. We just go and we just rail against people. And we pick it and we claim our rights. And this is, I think that's the wrong way to go about speaking truth into a culture. You can calmly and firmly expose the lack of truth in our world. Like Jesus did. He just calmly tells them the truth. So as Christians, we live in the kingdom of truth. And we serve a king who is the truth. And so we, 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 we don't have to fear when we can stand up and say the truth, but we can do it in a way that models Christ. But in order to be people who go and share the truth in a, in a Christ-like way, we have to know the truth. And that was what was so shocking about that survey is that you know, half of supposed Christians in church, they're confused about the truth. They don't even know what truth is. So my encouragement and my prayer for you is that you would be people of the word, that we would study this together in groups on our own, that we would desire that this book, this word would transform our minds so that we could discern, okay, what is the truth? What is the will of God? What is good, acceptable, perfect, like Romans 12 says? And then we can, in confidence, go and share the truth with a world that, although they deny the truth, in my conversations with people, People are hungry for some type of truth to stand on. It's got to be exhausting to feel like there is no floor under you. People want the truth. They might push against it and say, I don't care about truth. But deep down, people want something solid to stand on. And so would you be people of the truth that go and in love speak the truth? So, Father, I just thank you for your word. I, I thank you that we see in our passage that this whole postmodern idea of truth is not new. That 2,000 years ago, Pilate said the same thing that our culture says. What is truth? Because, God, human beings were the same as they were back then. And like Romans 1 describes, we just, we know what the truth is, but we just so often don't want to hear it. And we want to do our own thing, and that inevitably leads to chaos and decay and sin and depravity. And I think that is very evident in the world that we live in today. So God, I pray, um, first of all, I thank you, Jesus, that you are the truth, I thank you that there is universal objective truth. We're not standing on quicksand. There is a firm foundation to believe in. That there is truth. And it's you, Jesus, and it's found in your word. So we don't have to flounder because there's no truth. There is truth. And so, God, I pray that we would be people of the truth that we would spend time in your word, that our minds would be transformed by the power of your word, that we would know what is good and acceptable and true, what your will is, God. 
And then because we have been transformed, I pray that we would go out into our culture, not in arrogance, not in uh, righteous anger, not in just turning our nose down at people, but that we would go out in love telling people there is truth that you can cling to. And that we would be bold to share the truth of what we believe. And God, would you use that to draw many, many men and women to yourself that in our culture, they are just drowning. God, I know that people are just desperate to hang on to something that's true. And so I pray that we would faithfully and truthfully go and offer them Jesus and that they would find that that is the truth that they can stand on. So just do your work in our hearts, God. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.